Thank you very much. Morning, everyone. Are we good? Excellent. Great to be here uh, with you. And um, just uh, as already been explained, uh, we're going to go on a little bit of a journey over the next, uh, well, including this one, four weeks. And um, just just out of interest, um, has anybody ever said to you something like, give me one good reason why... I should marry you. Something like that, I don't know. Uh, maybe not marry you, but you know what I mean? Give me one good reason why I should come and sign up for this. Or give me one good reason why I should believe you on this. Have you ever had those kinds of experiences? And um, we want to take a bit of a journey. And I want to hope and pray that over the next uh, 40 minutes or so this morning and subsequent three weeks that I can give you a couple of good reasons why I think uh, Christianity is totally and utterly reasonable. But just a little bit of backdrop. I'm not here uh, with a kind of har- arrogance that I've got everything sorted and that, you know, I've got it wrong and or right rather than you're all wrong or anything like that. What I want to do is I wonder whether you might be willing, if you're here this morning and at this moment in time, you're not a Christian. And by that, we mean somebody who's connected with God, given their life over to God, embraced Jesus' forgiveness and started on this journey to discover what God's all about. That's the initial start point of what it means to become a Christian. And if you're here and you fit into that category, I wonder whether you might be willing to say, maybe, maybe Christianity is reasonable. And if you're here this morning and you're already a Christian, then maybe you could learn from this morning, or if it's right for you to come to the other three sessions, that you could uh, learn some things that'll help you to show to people that Christianity is reasonable, just rather than just kind of saying, you've got to believe, you must believe, but actually being willing to have some conversations with people. That's plan A. A number of years ago, uh, probably about 15, 20 years ago on reflection, as I was saying this morning, it's just time flies. Somebody sent me an email, and I'm sure you've had these types of emails before. Uh, they're one of these circular type emails, but a friend of mine sent it to me because he knows that one of the things that I like that make me smile or make me laugh are true life things. And um, so he sent me this little list that he just simply put at the top of the email, reasonable question mark. So here we go. Did you ever notice that when you blow in a dog's face, he gets mad at you? You ever tried that? They don't like it. Don't try it. But then he goes on to say, did you ever notice that when you blow in a dog's face, he gets mad at you, but when you take him on a car ride, he sticks his head out the window? What's that about? You know what I mean? That's not very reasonable, is it? Try it, honestly, it's bonkers. And then here we go. Some of you relate to this one. Why is it that people say they slept like a baby when babies wake up every two hours? That makes no sense, does it? No sense at all. Here we go. Have any of you visited a really tall building, got to the top, found that there's some binoculars that you can put money into so that you can look at the things back down there on the ground. Anybody done that? Yeah? That makes no sense, does it? And then this is one that not everybody will, will get this one. One or two of you might get it. Some of you will be going, uh, and some of you will laugh faking it because you don't want to feel left out. But here we go. Why is phonics not spelled the way it sounds? Eh? That makes sense, doesn't it? 
not very reasonable, is it? So some things are reasonable and some things aren't reasonable. And we're going to ask specifically this morning, is it reasonable to believe the Bible. Is it reasonable to believe the Bible? If we could have the first slide, that'd be fantastic. Just a little backdrop slide for us, that'd be fantastic. I want to suggest to you it's reasonable to believe the Bible for a number of reasons. First of all, next slide, it agrees with science. It agrees with science. There's this strange notion out there in the big bad world that you've got the Bible on one side and you've got science on the other and never the twain shall meet. I was um, speaking in Malvern a, a number of years ago now. And I was speaking in a, sort of the second year of sixth form in a school called uh, The Chase in Malvern. And um, The Chase School, particularly The Chase School in Malvern, is, is academically quite strong. There'd be a lot of the young people that would go to the top universities in the country, a number of them... Uh, would be on their way to Cambridge and Oxford. They were very sharp young people. Uh, that was largely due to the fact that a number, or the largest employer rather, in Malvern at the time was a, a, a thing called Kinetic, which was at the time the number one research institute and body for the government. And so you had a lot of scientific people that were there and produced some quite brilliant people um, who've actually been um, noted globally. Uh, a friend of mine uh, that I got to know quite well, he'd been noted globally for some incredible scientific advancements. And so you talk about that kind of person. And so I delivered my sort of 20 minutes talk about God and then it was open for, for a time of questions and answers. And, and as I was chatting, I happened to notice on the front row, there was a young lad who was getting a little bit agitated. Now, I didn't need a degree to work out he wasn't happy with what I was saying. I could tell by his mannerisms and his eyes. I thought, I don't think he likes me. This is not the first occasion I've come across this. So we got to the end of the conversation and I opened up the floor for questions and answers. Come as no surprise to me that he could not get his hand up quick enough. So I said, yes, sir, because I thought I'll be polite. He said, the problem with you Christians, and I braced myself because you do, don't you? Do you know what I mean? When somebody like bangs that phrase out, the problem with you Christians, it's like, come on, hit me, baby. One more time. As a, as a philosopher once said, <laughs> and so I did embrace myself. The problem with you Christians is you only believe what people tell you and what you read in a book. And I looked at the fan and I said, "Yeah, fair point." He went, "What?" Yeah, I went, "Yeah, fair point." He said, "Really?" I went, "Yeah, fair point." Now look, look, for those of you who are Christians, I know you're thinking, Mark, it's a little bit more than just believing what people tell you and what you read in the book. It's about the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. I just didn't think he'd get that. So let's go back to this. Yeah, you're right. He said, is it? Am I? I went, yeah. yeah. Really? I went, yeah, yeah. He said, I didn't expect you to say that. I said, I know. That's why I said it. 
He said, well, is it true? And I'm thinking to myself, you're starting to doubt your own question here. Do you know what I mean? I didn't, I didn't say that, but I wanted to say it. So we had a little chit-chat around that for a little while. And I just said to him, you obviously have a problem in, um, in Christians because they simply believe what they read in a book and what people tell them. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, would you mind telling me um, what you believe? I'd be really fascinated. I'd be really genuinely, I am genuinely fascinated and intrigued. And he said to me, yeah, so I believe in, and he, and he listed this thing. And basically, he was a, a kind of a something kind of physicist. No, no, not an astrophysicist. I've met one or two of those. Uh, it, it was a something physicist that I'd never met before. So I said, oh, that's fascinating. Tell me more about what you believe. And so he told me about what he believed. I went, that's amazing. And it was. In the very broad sense of the word, it was amazing. So I listened and listened, and I said, oh, that's, that's great. Just, just out of interest, where do you get that from? He said, well, it's true, isn't it? I said, well, it's not what I asked, though, is it? I said, where do you get that from? He said, well, it's true, isn't it? I said, look, it's not what I asked, is it? I'm going to ask you one more time. I felt like I was like a, a, in a legal situation. Now I put it to you on the night in question. Where did you get that from? I asked him one more time. He didn't have a chance to inhale, let alone exhale, before a, a rampant evangelical Christian in the top corner of the school, in the top corner of the lesson rather, I thought, she's going to blow. I mean, the eyes were out on stalks, like the vein, you know when the veins go... I thought, if she doesn't say something, she's going to blow. And she did. She shouted out at the top of her voice, he read it in a book. <laughs> I looked at him, I went, you didn't, did you? He went, I did, I did. <laughs> I said, look, how come it's okay for you to believe what you believe when you read it in a book and somebody told you, but it's not okay for me to believe what I believe when I read it in a book and somebody told me. I said, that's just really unfair. I said to him, truth, most of us believe what we believe because we read it in a book or somebody told us, brackets on YouTube. The source of all that is accurate, by the way. Yeah, maybe not a little bit. So I said to him, look, would you concede that the reason you're giving me for not believing the Bible isn't fair and therefore you shouldn't have a problem with Christians believing in, Bi in the Bible just based on that rationale. His big problem really, and this is what kind of boiled down to it, he said to me, the problem is, Mark, that I have is the Bible is just a load of rubbish and science isn't. And I said, right, listen. In just a few moments' time, we're going to have that debate. But would you concede that the reason you've given as a, a bad reason for Christian the Bible and believing in what people have told them is actually unfair? And to be fair to the lad, to be fair to him, he did concede that, and you've got to respect him for that. But his big problem was he felt that you've got the Bible here and you've got science here and never the twain shall meet. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to suggest to you, the Bible and science do agree with each other. Now, the Bible and science don't always agree with each other. But it doesn't mean that the Bible's definitely wrong because of that. Because you do know that science is based on the fact that science and science disagree with each other. 
You do know that, don't you? We're going to have a little look um, next week, if you're in this session, about how we interpret evidence. It's, it's really fascinating. It's really intriguing. So I'm not going to press too much down that particular channel right now. But let me just show to you a couple of things very, very quickly that will help you to understand that actually the Bible and science can live hand in hand with each other. Take the earth, for example. Today we know that the earth is circular. We know that it's suspended in space. How do we know that? Because we're able, through technology, to, to discover. We were able to go beyond our own earth and look back, but even through telescopes and, and travel, we were able to discover that actually the, the earth is circular and that it just hangs there. Here's an interesting one. The oldest book in the Bible says this, God hangs the earth on nothing. So, for those of you not familiar with the Bible, the Bible essentially is not one book, it's a collection of 66 books. In fact, the word Bible means library. And it's fascinating, there's a whole bunch of different styles of books. I'm not going to go into that today, but there's a plethora of different styles of books. It's really fascinating. And every book that you read has a name, yeah? So if you go and buy a book, you buy a book, it's got a name. And all those books in the Bible, they have names to them. And uh, like every book, they have a chapter. Most books that you will read, there's the occasional ones that don't fit this particularly, but most books that you read will have chapters. And those books in the Bible are no different. And then some books have more minute reference details to identify a collection of sentences. It's a little bit like a postcode identifies your street. So the Bible kind of breaks up into two sections. You've got the oldest bit and the newest bit. Now to help you know which is the oldest bit and the newest bit, we've been really creative and we call the oldest bit the old Thank you. I'm getting there. It's like I'm the wife here finishing my sentences. And you've got the newest bit, the New Testament. The Old Testament, which is the oldest collection of books, Job is in there. And it's Job chapter 26, verse 7, that says, God hangs the earth on nothing. What you may not understand, or may not know, forgive me, if you're already a Christian, is actually the book of Job is the oldest book. So it's the oldest book, and it's in the oldest part of the Bible. I mean, thousands of years have passed since these words were penned, which says God hangs the earth for nothing. The earliest recorded book of, uh, manuscript of Isaiah, that's the earliest recorded writing of the book of Isaiah, is approximately 400 BC. And it's in there, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, that it says he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Science later discovered this to be the case. Take the ocean until, I mean, this is crazy, until as recent as the 1900s, we thought that the earth was saucer-shaped. So if you go down into the coffee lounge, just have a quick look at a saucer. And, well, unless you're having the, the paper cups, but, you know, have a little look at if, you, if you're posh. Have a little look at the saucer, and you'll see that it's kind of comes down at one end, comes down at another end, and it's kind of at its deepest in the middle, until as recent as the 1900s, that's approximately 100 years ago that we thought the ocean bed was saucer-shaped. Today we know that there are vast canyons and great mountains, even within the sea, some that point above sea level, some that don't quite reach above sea level. 
and the canyons that go so far down, we don't actually um, know whether what's down there even. It's yet undiscovered. Do you remember when, I think it was the Malaysian Airlines um, airplane came out of the sea and, and came out of the air, rather, forgive me, into the sea. And what they were saying is we only have the technology that can locate it for about three miles. Anything beyond that, if it goes down into these great big canyons, we just, we just, there's no hope even of detecting its whereabouts. Well, today we accept that readily. In the oldest part of the Bible, against Sam, the book, uh, 18, the chapter 15, the little reference talks about the valleys of the seas. And Jonah, the book, chapter 2, reference verse 6, talks about the mountains of the seas. These were things that 100 years ago we never even knew existed. And yet again, in the oldest part of the Bible, there's these references that talk about things that science later discovers. If you were to go on holiday today, because uh, you want to get a cheap deal because the kids are going back, so you go when there's no kids out there, and you decide, we're going to drive to France. So you drive down to Dover, and assuming there's no strike on the French side, you catch a ferry, you land in Calais. Okay, you don't necessarily go across by the shortest route, you go by the quickest route. That may happen to be the shortest route, but that's not the criteria for travelling across. You go on the quickest route. Why? Because navigation across the oceans and channels of the world are based upon the fact that there are pathways and roads. We call them currents. A man by the name of Matthew Murray was one day reading his Bible. He was a committed Christian. As he read through his Bible, he read this little reference in a book called Psalm, Old Testament, 8, chapter 8, verse 8. And it says, you made him... Speaking of mankind, ruler over, and it gives a great big list, and then it has this kind of casual, kind of throwaway sentence, and all that swim in the paths of the seas. Matthew Murray thought, hang on a minute, if the Bible says there are paths in the seas, there must be paths in the seas. You see, Matthew Murray discovered a great truth about the Bible, that both trivia and truth if the Bible says it, it's real. So he thought to himself, right, if the Bible says there's paths in the seas, then I need to have a little investigate. And he investigated, and it was on the basis of that that he discovered that marine life travelled in these currents. You will have seen images of it if you've watched any kind of nature programme where it's looking at the sea. And uh, sometimes the, the speed of those currents is quite incredible. In fact, if you've ever got caught in one of them, even near land, when you've been rowing or something on a blue and yellow rubber dinghy, like once happened to me, I'll tell you about that another day, when you thought you were rowing fantastically well, but it was nothing to do with that. It was the current taking you out very, very quickly. I mean, like, it's crazy, the speed, and they realized that this marine life, their natural speed was accentuated because they traveled in these currents. Off the back of that, Matthew Murray became nicknamed the Pathfinder of the Seas. And he is the father of modern navigation. And he wrote the first oceanographic physics textbook on marine travel. So if you travel down the sea, it's directly as a result of one day Matthew Murray reading his Bible and discovering that what he read in the Bible was true. I want to present to you that not only is the Bible true factually and through trivia, it's true through truth. It's real through truth. 
And part of what I want to say to you is, as you discover the Bible, and I would encourage you to be prepared to lay to one side any preconceived ideas you might have, could you be open-minded for those of you not already a Christian, say, maybe there's some truth, maybe that what all these Christians are talking about, they've discovered something in the Bible, and maybe go on a little bit of a journey yourself to discover it. Why? Because some of the greatest scientists of all time have been Christians. Copernicus, Galileo, Faraday, Pastor Kepler, loads of these great scientists that have lived and actually currently live. Some of the top scientists and professors in the world, we'll touch a little bit onto those again next week, are all Bible-believing Christians. In fact, this is a fantastic name, Professor Sir Gillian Prance. It's a good name, that, isn't it? There's not many Professor Sir Gillian Prances around Birmingham, I would suggest. It's a great name, isn't it? Or one that you get rid of. I'll leave you to decide that. But he was a former director of the Royal Botanic Gardens between 1988 and 1999. Says this, All my studies in science have confirmed my faith. I regard the Bible as my principal source of authority. Does the Bible and science disagree? Sometimes. But in truth, hear me right on this, Science regularly comes around to discover that what the Bible talked about is actually true. Ladies and gentlemen, that is just one or two. I could literally spend at least the entirety of this talk giving you more and more examples of how what we've discovered through science, the Bible has certainly referenced thousands of years before even science have discovered it. So first of all, it agrees with science. Secondly, I want to suggest to you, it agrees with archaeology. It agrees with archaeology. It's interesting. There is a theory, and has been a theory for a long time, by, um, I wouldn't say experts, but I want to suggest more sceptical experts, if I may, who've said that because there's been no archaeological discovery and evidence outside of the Bible that has been found to substantiate the narratives, the stories, the facts of the Bible, the Bible is incorrect. Now, I want to say two things around that this morning. First of all, I want to say to you, I am staggered by the poor logic from would-be academics or people who would posture themselves as academics because I've discovered a simple truth in life and it's true in so many ways. The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Just because something can't be proved, it doesn't therefore mean it's untrue. More about that next week. So first of all, it's logically flawed. Secondly, it's factually incorrect. It is factually incorrect. Again, let me just take two brief archaeological discoveries just to help you understand. There are innumerable um, uh, examples I could give, but just for the sake of time and just to to kind of make the point, let me give you a couple uh, this morning. The Old Testament mentions a group of people called the Hittites. Uh, Now, they lived in the north of Israel until about 100 years ago. um, No one had found any trace or mention of the Hittites anywhere except in the Bible. And so the experts said that if they really existed, then someone else would have written about them or archaeologists would have found remains of their work. Therefore, this shows the Bible 
is wrong. Again, poor logic and factually incorrect. In 1906, for example, a German man, again a great name, Hugo Winkler. It's a great name, Hugo Winkler, isn't it? Hugo Winkler was digging in Turkey uh, 100 miles east of Ankara. He found the city that was the Hittite capital. He also found many clay tablets written in the Hittite language. Further proof of their existence was found on clay tablets in Egypt. They told of a great battle between Ramses II of Egypt, uh, uh, Ramses II of Egypt, forgive me, and the Hittites in about 287 BC. Archaeologists have also discovered pictures of Hittites drawn by Egyptian artists. These discoveries showed that the Bible is correct and the doubters were wrong. One more. In the Old Testament, there's a book called Daniel, okay? And if you've uh, had, spent any time reading the Bible, you'll have probably heard of Daniel and the lion's den. So you'll be familiar, maybe one or two of you who maybe don't read the Bible a lot, you may be familiar with that story. So that book, Daniel, that person, Daniel, in chapter 5, it talks about a king called Belshazzar. Now, Belshazzar was killed, and um, the Medes and the Persians took over. And for many years, it was said that the ancient writings showed that actually Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon, and that there never was a king called Belshazzar. But in the 20th century, archaeologists digging in the old city of Ur, spelled U-R, found many tablets and that the Babylonians had written on. Some of them were from the time of Nabonidus. And on them it says that King Nabonidus left the country for several years. Whilst he was gone, he left his son to rule as king. Guess what that king was called? Belshazzar. And he was killed the day the Medes and the Persians took over. It's exactly what the book of Daniel had talked about. Now what you need to understand, a little bit of background knowledge, because it's important to, to dig around. Part of what we do as speakers is we try and dig around to help us to understand something more. And if you dig around uh, and, and do some thorough investigation, you find out that when uh, Dad King went off, Sun King was left not as acting king, not as assistant king, but as full-blown king. And he had all the rights and authority of king. And whatever decisions he made were done as king. They were cool. Dad didn't have a problem with those. They were the right decisions. No, they didn't seek to overturn them. He acted as king. And so exactly when you understand the narrative, you patch it up with the archaeology and you look back uh, to do a little bit of digging around, you realize that actually these archaeological discoveries are pretty accurate, as is the Bible. In fact, William Albright, who's one of the greatest archaeologists of all time, said this. The excessive skepticism shown towards the Bible has been progressively discredited. Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of innumerable details and has broadly increased the recognition of the value of the Bible as a source of history. To the point where actually on certain university courses you are recommended to read the Bible because it, it gives a good background to certain historical things that have taken place. I hope you're beginning to see that the Bible is a pretty spectacular book. And listen, I personally believe it's God's, it's God's book for humanity. 
I, that's, that's my deal. That's, that's my standpoint. But I do acknowledge that if you've never really read the Bible, never even th- really thought about it, you know, maybe when was the last time you even mentioned the word Bible? Maybe, maybe the last time you had any recollection of a Bible is when you opened that chest of drawers in the Premier Inn and not Lenny Henry, but, you know, a Gideon's Bible was in there. But you never really opened it or read it. So I accept it's a bit of a major step for you to go from not really reading it to embracing it as God's word for humanity. But can you begin to see that it actually is reasonable to believe this book is a bit spectacular? Do you know what? It is still the world's best-selling book. It's got to be for a reason, hasn't it? It's got to be for a reason. Best, I don't know of any bestsellers that have stayed this long, but this is the best-selling book that has remained so almost forever. There was only one particular time when it wasn't, and another book, just for a brief moment in time, which was Lady Chastity's Lover. Some of you were that. For a brief moment in time. But the Bible has remained the best, the bestseller. Could it be because it contains something that no other book really contains? But hey, do you know what? If all I'm trying to show to you is that it's archaeologically accurate and scientifically works, I think we're missing something quite incredible about the Bible. Those things are all true. And I'm trying to present to you and say, look, some of the objections people have for not even reading it are just unfair. And I wonder maybe even... Not embracing it as God's word for humanity. If you begin to see that it's an incredible book, could you begin to have a little look into it? I'd like to advise you as to where you could start uh, with that. But let me say a third thing that helps me to believe it's reasonable to believe the Bible. Third thing is this, it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. Now, we've not helped. The church has not helped. If you go into a Christian bookshop... Uh, in fact, even if you go to a, any bookshop that sells Bible, you will be offered a plethora of versions. You'll have the New International Version, you'll have the Good News Version, you'll have the English Standard Version, you'll have the Revised Standard Version, you'll have the Newly Revised Standard Version, you'll have the King James Version, you'll have the New King James Version, you'll have the New International Version, you'll have the New International Readers Version. I mean, it's incredible that you've got all sorts of different versions that you can, um, that you can, <laughs> that you can read and access. You really, really have. And it's like, versions, why have we got different versions? It's like, have you got fed up with the old one? Have you had enough of that? Let's find a better one. Because that's what happens, isn't it? Like, if you, like, I trade my car in, because I've got a car on lease, and every time I trade it in, I get a better version. So that is, it's, it's, an, it's, it's, an, it's a better version. I didn't like the old one. Is that what it means? No. Let me explain. Would you agree that the English language is changing? You would agree with that, okay? So there are certain words that we used many years ago, which actually means something different today because the definitions have changed. And so what we have to do is we have to go, right, in order to communicate that truth, which has now changed a little bit because the understanding of the words have changed, we have to go back to the original language, which we can do, Greek in the New Testament with a smattering of Aramaic and Hebrew for the Old Testament. We go back to those and we go, right, that's what it means, that's what it says. What are the best words that we have available in this culture, in this time, to best articulate the truths of the Bible? And what makes it more difficult is take the word love. 
the Greeks, so the New Testament is written in Greek, okay? The Greeks have four words for love. I've got one. So apparently, I love my wife like I love fish and chips. Do you know what I mean? It loses some of its meaning. Oh, I love fish and chips. Oh, I love you, Emma. Do you know what I mean? Now, clearly, I love Emma more than fish and chips. I wasn't struggling to get that out. I just, I just sense I need a bit of, bit of clarity. It's probably going to be needed just to be taken a few moments. <laughs> but that, this is the problem. So we read even simple words like that. So it gets really complex. So what we have to do is say, how can we best articulate? But here's the beauty. If you've ever been involved with working on a document at work, for example and uh, you've got a collective of people, you create a document. Let's say it's called Birmingham City Church, okay? So Birmingham City Church version one, okay? And then you change it a bit, so you call, you don't want to get rid of the old one because you want to see where you've come from, don't you? So you go version one, eh. And then you kind of change it a little bit, so you go version one, eh, eh. <laughs> And then you add it a little bit more, and you go version one, eh, eh, eh. Okay, and you've moved on a little bit now, so you go version if, version vi, version xe. Okay? And what we can do is we can trace back through the versions and go, ah, oh, that's where the change took place, that's where the change took place, that's where the t- change took place, that's where the change took place. And we're able to identify where the Bible's changed. But do you know what? We can do that with the Bible because we have in excess of 24,000 original manuscripts just for the New Testament alone that let us know that nothing's changed. So we can trace it. We can do a document trace. It's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. So the word version's not that helpful. It really, really isn't. But we just need to acknowledge that in order to really articulate these incredible truths in the Bible, we have to say, right, how do we now articulate that in the world that we find ourselves living in? And that's a challenge for people who are Christians, who are so used to using words that don't really mean anything anymore to people who are not church, and it's also a challenge maybe for people outside of the church that you need to understand. We're not just changing because we got fed up of it. We're trying our best to say, how do we communicate this incredible, not just trivia, but truth that is in this wonderful book that's changed our lives? The Word of God hasn't changed, the Bible hasn't changed, but it changes people's lives It's incredible, really. The Gospels were all written within the lifetime of Jesus' first followers. They were their actual eyewitness accounts. The Gospels were written a few decades after Jesus' death. Eastern memories were highly trained, and information was learned by heart in order to pass on its accuracy. But people said to me, but couldn't that, like, you know, like Chinese whispers, the game, couldn't that have happened? Well, personally, I believe that God was overseeing it anyway, But if I was to suspend that answer for a few moments and say, yes, that could have happened, then you need to apply the same logic to every other historical manuscript and doubt those as well. But the truth is what we think. Like, I've got de-skilled. When I first started traveling, I could go to a place once, visit it, and 10 years ago, I could go back again without even needing a map. Now, I can't even get to the end of my street without my sat-nav. Do you know what I mean? It's like, because my brain's gone. My brain's gone. Unless Jane tells me where to go, I've not got a clue what I'm doing. So we've kind of lost it a little bit. There were more ancient, there are, forgive me, more ancient copies of the Gospels than any other history, any other 
historical document which confirm that they haven't been changed. Listen to this, 24,000 manuscripts exist from before printing was even invented, far more than for any other ancient document on which we rely for human history. The earliest New Testament manuscripts are much closer to the events written about than for any other ancient source. Hands down, hands down, the original writings of the Bible are standout. Are standout. But here's the story, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, it's been substantiated archaeologically. Yes, it's been substantiated scientifically. Yes, it's remained solid and indestructible and it has never changed and it stands the test of time more than any other manuscript. But here's, here's the deal. Fourth slide, please. It's indestructible. It's indestructible. In AD 303, the Roman Emperor Diocletian ordered all copies of the books of the Bible to be destroyed. He even thought he'd succeeded. He had a medal. He had a medal engraved that said these words, the Christian religion is destroyed. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have heard of Diocletian, please raise your hands. One person possibly. If you've heard of God, Christianity, Jesus, anything to do with it, raise your hands. Motion carried. I think he struggled, don't you? You see, I learned something incredible. It's interesting. I read this in the Bible, and it says it about itself and says it about God's words, which is not normally the kind of reasoning I'd use, because that's quite circular. But when I come and, and look at these things where people have tried to destroy the Bible, people have come time and time and time and time again to destroy the Bible. And you know what? Fast forward hundreds of years ago, and people forget the people that tried to destroy it, but the Bible is still alive. And the Bible actually says about itself and God's word, grass withers, flowers fall, but my words shall remain. My words shall remain. Incredible, isn't it? I want to tell you a story that I didn't say in the first service, but I just feel it's quite appropriate to, to say now before I then go on to my uh, final point and land this little chat in the next five minutes or so. That's to give you hope. So you know where we're going, but I will stick to that. Don't panic. When I first became a Christian, I'm not from a Christian family. My, my, whole Christ, my whole family became Christians through some guy coming and knocking on our door. And uh, long story short, we became Christians over a couple of weeks period. Though it's actually, in terms of my dad and my mum, the kind of journey was a little bit longer than that. Um, but when I first became a Christian, um, I, I'm not brought up in a Christian family. And so we had this wonderful couple called Bob and Edna Lake. Now, Bob and Edna Lake, they were like spiritual mum and dad uh, in the Christian faith to my mum and dad. And they were like spiritual grandparents in the faith to, to me and my siblings. And Bob was amazing. We used to have uh, a small group that met in our home, which like many, many other churches do. And the idea is you, you kind of just have a little look around the Bible. You kind of you, you sing stuff. And just Maybe a space to, to work out how the Bible applies more than... Maybe you might get any other time. And it's fantastic. And Bob and Edna led our small group. Now, what always blew me away about Bob was on a Sunday morning at the Elam Church in Bradford. For those of you who don't know, Birmingham City Church is part of a bigger family of churches called Elam. And I used to attend the Bradford Elam Church when I became a Christian. And this is where Bob and Edna were. And every Sunday morning, it was back in the day when pretty well every Sunday morning we, we had communion with bread and Ribena to celebrate the death 
and um, Jesus dying on the cross and, he's, and him giving his body and, and the blood coming out. Uh, and gonna, there's an opportunity that at the end of this service. But this, was, this is what happened. Before we got that communion bit, the pastor of the church would say, a guy called Godfrey Fun, if anybody's got anything they want to share or pray or read, then please feel free to do that. And blow me down with a feather duster, as my mother used to say. Bob would get up every single Sunday morning and he would recite great swathes of the Bible. Like different passages every Sunday. And I would like watch in awe because this guy's love for the Bible was phenomenal. He, like, he, he divulged, not divulged, he digested the Bible. He took it in, he took it in. And I stood like massive respect. Fast forward a few years ago, I went away and trained to do what I'm doing now, and um, Bob and Edna retired, they moved out to Scarborough, and uh, I, I was due to speak at the Elam Church in Scarborough, which Bob and Edna attended, when the minister, a guy called Graham Parkin, rang me up, and he said, oh Mark, you, you may or may not know, we'd, we'd lost contact with Bob and Edna a little bit, I'd moved away, Facebook didn't really exist in those days, and um, the minister rang me and said, oh, just to let you know, um, very, very quickly, Bob has, has deteriorated in his health. Um, he'd got um, kind of um, dementia, but it was like onset, quick, quick onset dementia. And for anybody that, that you know people in that, it's horrible, horrible to see. So Bob said, I just need to let you know because I don't want you rocking up to church and not coping with it. So anyway, I, I got up there and Edna's dear wife, she dressed him, got him to church and uh, I squeezed his hand, but there's just nothing there. It is painful and horrible. And um, I had to go into the toilet and, and weep and pull myself together because I had to preach soon. It was really painful. So we go through the service. And the pastor, Graham Parkin, says, in a few moments, we're going to have communion. If anybody would like to pray or say anything or read the Bible, then now's the opportunity to do that. I could not believe it. Bob stood up and recited great swathes of the Bible. And it blew me away. I will never, ever forget to this day. You see, grass withers, flowers fall, but my words shall remain. Shall remain. It's indestructible, and finally, it's reliable. It's reliable. You can 100% depend on the Bible, because it's God's Word. My daughter, Robin, she's at secondary school. Uh, about a year ago, she was given a piece of homework from her RE teacher, and this was the instruction to rewrite for today's society the Ten Commandments. That was the instruction. So Robin brought the piece of work home. She chatted about it with us. We didn't advise her in any way, shape, or form. I said, you, you do what you feel. This was her homework that she submitted back to her RE teacher. There is no need to change the Ten Commandments. God has written them. They've stood the test of time. They're fine as they are. They don't need rewriting. In conclusion, leave them alone. I was so proud. I was so proud of her. Clearly my influence, right? Not Emma's. Yeah, you do understand that, yeah? Obviously my influence. But the thing is, Robin had hit on something. Folks, we don't need to change them. 
We don't need to water them down. We don't need to liberalize them. We don't need to make them more palatable. Why? Because they are the rules for living in life, our rules to live. If you go at 34 miles an hour in a 30, as much as it pains me to take those three points, I deserve them because they're rules for living. The Bible is not just scientifically good, archaeologically good. It's not just uh, stayed consistent and been so accurate. It's not just indestructible. Ladies and gentlemen, it is reliable. And if you're a Christian, you never be ashamed to live your life based on the Bible. Don't hold back. And if you're here today and somebody who's not a Christian, may I encourage you to look into it because maybe contained within the pages of this book may be the key to what you need for your life and it will show you how you can connect with God. I think it's very reasonable to believe the Bible. Thank you very much indeed. Let's all stand together, shall we? It's so good to see you today. You know, the same Bible that Mark has so ably assured us about today. In fact, let's thank Mark for this message, shall we, again. That's just great. But the same Bible says, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He's not here. He's risen. The Bible says that. See, if you're going to believe that it's accurate about some things, what about some of the other things it says? It says the same Bible says, how many times should I forgive my brother and my sister? And Jesus said, 77 times 7. In other words, as often as they get upset at you or do something to you, you forgive them. Can I hear an amen, church? You see, if you're going to accept one part, you're going to have to accept all the parts. You know, the same Bible says, say it with me, for those of you who know the Scripture. For God so loved the world, that who gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The Bible says that. You know, the same Bible says that we're to keep the bond of unity amongst us. The same Bible says love one another. Why don't you just turn to somebody and, says, and say to them, the Bible says we are to love each other. Just turn to somebody. You see... This book is not just a book within it and through it and around it is a person who wants to connect with you. And so you can prove it scientifically and you can prove it archaeology wise and you can say it's reliable and you can do those things of which we need to do because today we wanted to bring you a message that isn't just hoop and holler but it's something the Bible says that we are to love God with our heart our body and also our mind and what we've tried to do is feed your mind today 
But you know, the same Bible says at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess him that he is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is anybody who wants to confess Jesus as Lord today? See, that's what the Bible says. But today, you might be struggling with something, you might be hurting with something, and you need to hear something from God's Word. You know that the Bible says this in in a book called Hebrews chapter 13, and it's verse 5, it says, Never will I leave you, says the Lord, never will I forsake you. And you know how Mark was saying that the original language, we have to kind of interpret it. Actually, this is what this is what it actually says in the original. Never will I leave you. No, not never, ever, never, ever. No, not never. And no, not never will I forsake you. Ever, ever, no, not never. That's actually what that, how that verse is written. That's what the Bible says. Would you lift your hand with me and just begin to say whatever your challenges God's got a word for you God's got an instruction for life for you